Welcome to uh, this week's edition of the Codcast, Commonwealth's weekly uh, look at policy and politics and the people who uh, make it. Um, joining us today are uh, Todd Wallach, the um, uh, data reporter for Spotlight uh, team in Boston Globe. Welcome, Todd. Thanks. And Esme Caramello, the uh, executive director of the Harvard Legal Aid Bureau. Welcome, Professor. Thanks for having uh, me. The reason that we have uh, Todd and uh, Esme with us today is we're going to be discussing the new rules that have come out governing the uh, public access for documents at the uh, trial court in Boston, um, in Massachusetts. So I want to start with you, Todd. Um, you uh, have been um, one of the preeminent reporters working on uh, public access to documents. Taking a look at these rules, my first read on it is that it's not all that different from what we have had despite this large investment in technology that the courts have had. Uh, and if anything, I tend to read it that's a little bit more restrictive in that you can't search by uh, names for criminal, which you couldn't before anyway, but you could search before by calendar and you can't do that anymore. Um, and there seems to be a little bit more power given to clerks as far as what they're able to release and what they're willing to release. What's your read on it so far? Uh, the people I've talked to, uh, seems like everyone has mixed feelings about it, no matter what side they're on. Uh, I agree with you that uh, there's some similarity between the new rules and uh, what historically has been available. So for you know about two decades, uh, journalists and attorneys could access criminal information on superior court cases through a login account, be able to look up any case going back decades uh, by searching for name or searching for date. And that was a really important tool for attorneys and journalists alike in, in trying to represent their clients or track cases going on in, in the courts. And there was a period, brief period of time where the courts were experimenting with letting uh, journalists and attorneys search uh, superior court cases by name. Uh, and with the new rules, they're deciding to sort of go back to the old system with more restrictions. So now you'll only be able to look up a case if you already know the docket number. And that uh, is causing some of my colleagues to tear their hair out because they're wondering if somebody is, is charged with a crime, how do they find out the docket number right away? Uh, if somebody is a party in a case, how do the, and don't know the docket number, how do they find their own case? If an attorney is taking on a new client, how do they know uh, the docket number? Uh, so the, the plus is that it makes information uh, available online and it will not just, no longer will you need an account. Anyone will be able to access these cases. A challenge will be that you will have to know a docket number. Uh, so that means that people will probably have to either visit a courthouse in person to find the case, or they'll have to call clerks who are already busy uh, and don't necessarily relish lots of calls from journalists and lawyers to find that information out. There are some other aspects of the rules. It clarifies that uh, people can take pictures of documents with a smartphone or a handheld scanner. There have been some clerks who uh, discouraged that and wanted people to pay a dollar per page for every copy, so this should save people money. Uh, and uh, uh, those are the, the main points that strike me. I should also note that it, 
for the most part, people still won't be able to see documents online except for cases where lawyers can look up their own cases where they've already registered an official court appearance. For the most part, whether you're a journalist or, or uh, a, def- a defendant in a case or a member of the public, uh, you won't be able to look up any documents. So it's far more restrictive than the federal system. Uh, federal government courts have a system called PACER that allows you to look up virtually any document on any case, uh, as well as the basic information on upcoming hearings, um, if you have an account and, and are willing to pay a, a fee per page. Uh, many s- states tend to vary a lot. So there's some states that are just as open as uh, the federal courts. Some don't even charge. And there are other states that are much more restrictive. So uh, at the state and local level, it's all over the map. Well, uh, Professor, let me ask you. You are a lawyer. Um, you know, you, you've you read the Constitution, um, and, and, you know, you have fought for people's rights. So you're on board with us here, right, that, that these rules certainly uh, are not transparent and, and don't help uh, get information out to the public, right? Ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think... I, 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 as a practicing lawyer, I love having access to the Mass Courts database. There's no question. I mean, I used to, anytime I needed any information about one of my cases, mm-hmm. as Todd points out, you know, I don't want to bother mm-hmm. the clerks if I don't need to. So we'd schlep down to the courthouse and look it up on the computer or, or go in and get inf- access to information and in the files. Um, and it was inefficient. So for me, this is definitely a boost to my practice, and I have a more efficient practice. I hear a butt in there. Yeah, exactly. But here it, here it comes. Um, what we also saw uh, when these records did go online, and it's true, they, this, is not, this is not a rule that's going to put the records online. It's a rule that sort of says, going forward, here's how the online access is going to be governed uh, under a set of rules rather than what we're doing this week as opposed to what we did last week. Uh, once the records went online, and I practice in housing primarily, once the housing records went online, I saw a dramatic impact, and not just I, but the people that I work with, uh, basically the whole community of lawyers representing tenants, saw a dramatic impact on tenants and their ability to find new housing because suddenly their names were appearing in this online database, and instead of, um, you know, instead of having the ability to exercise their rights in court and then be able to have a more nuanced dialogue with a future landlord, they would apply for an apartment. It's too easy to just simply go online, look someone up, their name is in there. Maybe it's their name, maybe it's not. A lot of the information is very unreliable, which is concerning, um, which I'd love to talk to if we get a, talk about if we get a chance. And, um, and then they would just be blacklisted. And so people who are already very vulnerable and having trouble accessing housing are, are having a much harder time now. So the benefit to me is balanced with a real burden on my clients. But that, uh, just to push back a little bit, that's information that is publicly available. I mean, if Absolutely. you go to the courthouses, you can find that information anyway. Um, if you are somebody in Springfield and you're trying to find out information on somebody on the Cape, why should you not have that same kind of access that somebody in Barnstable would have? Well, I think it depends on who you are in Springfield and why you need the information on the person in the Cape. If you are um, trying to, if something, if information is really important to you and you have a real, um, genuine, legitimate interest in having that information, I think that for the most part, you're going to make the time and take the trouble to get that information. Uh, The problem with the information, so for example, um, if uh, the 
if the Spotlight team is doing an article on a particular landlord, I know this is uh, something that's come up. There was a landlord in Boston, and, and the Globe, maybe not the Spotlight team, but the Globe was doing an article on this landlord in Boston, and so they wanted to know sort of what are the cases that this landlord has been involved in. That's an investigation. The Globe can go to the courthouse and get the information. Um, but somebody just randomly sitting in their um, living room, I'm a little bored, so for example... The family court records, if the family court records go completely online as this is, right? You've got a teenager who says, you know, Joey was mean to me in school today. Let me see what I can dig up on Joey's family. I hear his parents are going through a divorce. They pop online. They have full access to the complete docket. A lot of those family motions have, you know, the titles of exactly what's going on in the case, motion to drug test the father based on the father's lying last Tuesday or whatever. Now Joey has access to that information. That's the kind of abuse that will not happen if you have to take one additional step. I mean, there's some protection to privacy where information is a little bit more inconvenient to get. It produces, it, it limits the information to those people who really need it and really want it. But when you say that, counselor, um, the the rules specifically state that that clerks and other officials cannot ask why somebody wants it. So how, and, and I'll actually put this to Todd, should there be a limit as to what, as to who can get this and why they can get that? Oh, it's an it's an interesting question, and the concept that Professor was referencing, I think, is often called privacy through obscurity. So, you there is a concept where you help give people additional privacy by making information hard to get, uh, even though it's publicly available. Uh, there are already remedies available to allow. Uh, judges and, and parties in a case to limit documents that are sensitive. Many documents are impounded. Uh, many document, many entire cases are sealed. Uh, and the courts and legislature have made that an easier process over time. Uh, but there have been already challenges uh, for reporters and researchers trying to get information on the courts. So, f- for instance, uh, the professor mentioned uh, a landlord that the Spotlight team uh, looked at, Anwar Faisal. And when the Spotlight team went to the courts and asked for a list of all the tr- uh, criminal cases, actually all the cases against uh, filed in housing court against landlords, the courts refused to provide any of the criminal cases in electronic form. So we couldn't figure out uh, electronically, based on the court data, who were the landlords who were the subject of the most uh, court actions, even companies. The, the courts wouldn't even release uh, data on which companies had faced the most criminal charges. Uh, we wound up being able to get it through a public records request to the city, which had initiated those actions, but we had to run through a lot of hoops. And it means that individuals who want to find out if their landlord is a problem can't go on the court website and find out whether their landlord has faced criminal charges or faced repeated problems. It's, it's a real disadvantage to them. Um, well, they can't, but they can go to the courthouse, and there's a computer terminal at every courthouse where they can look up the exact information that's now online and look it up. So if a tenant really were genuinely concerned about a landlord and worrying about, if we were in that kind of market, as we all know, Boston is not that kind of market, and Massachusetts generally is not that kind of market, and generally what we have is a homelessness problem where people can't get access to housing, um, where a large number of people are competing for a small and diminishing number of affordable apartments. And really what we're talking about is landlords screening tenants, not tenants screening landlords. 
But in any event, that information is available at the courthouse. So a, a truly interested member of the public, the spotlight team, a landlord, can get the exact same information that the courts that I'm concerned about being online by simply walking up to the computer terminal at the, at the courthouse, not sp- even speaking to a clerk. So the information's it, right there on the so, terminal. So it obviously, it obviously makes it more difficult if uh, a landlord, lo- I'm sorry, if somebody looking for housing and wants to check out a landlord has to go to every housing court uh, in the Boston area in person to check them out. Uh, it's easier to do in some other states. It also means that journalists and researchers can't do a lot of, of stories. Uh, you know, we had to work a lot harder to write that story about overcrowded housing uh, and write about writing about problem landlords. And it probably meant that we couldn't do other stories because we had to spend additional time just on that one getting basic data. There's a, a group of people interested in looking at the amount of bail that's being sent uh, for uh, indigent uh, defendants, and sometimes it's reportedly said at you know 100 bucks or 500 dollars, and and forces people who are really poor to to stay in in jail. And the bail project was having great difficulty getting that data in Massachusetts compared to other states because the courts don't have this information available electronically. They're not uh, subject to the public records law and they refused to provide the data. Uh, When the Spotlight team looked at uh, conviction rates of of drunk drivers and uh, were following up on a tip that some judges would refuse to convict people of drunk driving, the courts absolutely refused to give that data out. The courts maintain today that information showing how judges rule in cases is personnel information and not public, and they won't give that out. And by the way, the new rules say that they will not give out raw data ever to reporters and researchers who want that information, and it's up to their discretion whether to ever give out statistics. Uh, so that made it much more difficult. We were able to get data from some DAs showing that there was a real disparity, and some judges never convicted people of drunk driving, uh, and we were lucky to get that from some DAs, and in some counties we couldn't get the information at all. But again, this makes it very difficult for researchers and journalists who are trying to do important stories about how our courts operate and how our criminal justice system operates to get that data because of restrictions and getting access to basic data. Well, within the criminal justice um, area, though, Todd, one of the um, rationales behind the court's uh, rules um, are the the concerns over Corey, the Criminal Offender Records Information Act, and, and the potential violations to that. Um, as uh, the professor was talking about, if, if, if a tenant or if a, a landlord looks up somebody's name and they find that um, uh, docket on the, um, on the court system, it, it could potentially harm their ability to get a house. One of the pushes by um, previously uh, Governor Dukakis and, and now by some of the legislatures, uh, legislators is to um, protect somebody's past, give them an opportunity to have that second chance. Um, so if you find that, um, that docket that, that shows somebody's criminal history and it's 15 or 20 years old, how fair is it to that person to have that per- perpetually available on the Internet? Yeah, so that is a, a real debate that, that comes up. Uh, one thing to note is that Corey records are, um, do not cover um, court documents. Court documents are specifically exempt from Corey, and the legislature even went further to clarify that in the 
in 2010 and made it clear that indexes of court documents are also not uh, covered by the Cori Law. The Cori Law was initially uh, set up years ago to govern access to a state centralized database of criminal records uh, used by police, and it was gradually expanded to other people uh, like prosecutors. And it also has social security numbers and dates of birth, so it makes it really easy to identify somebody. If I looked up uh, uh, Mike Smith in, uh, in court records, I would find hundreds of cases on Mike Smith, and I would have no way to know which one is which unless I already knew about a case and uh, that that person was involved in uh, or went to the courthouse. So court records aren't exactly like Corey, but there are those similar concerns. The Corey law is very confusing. There's a lot of disagreement about what it means. The legislature has also ordered the, the courts to make uh, information on all, crip, all active criminal cases available on the internet. Uh, so uh, people have been getting have conflicting feelings and conflicting interpretations over exactly how to make information on the criminal justice system available, how to make information on court cases available, while also trying to respect the legislature's intent to narrow and restrict access to that centralized database of criminal records that also has people's social security numbers and dates of birth. But I think what was motivating the legislature in large part is... Um, not just the fact that there was a centralized database, but the, this idea, as Jack mentioned, that people should be able to get a second chance and that we have um, a, a racial disproportionality in our criminal justice system, among other things, and that mass incarceration is a problem. It's impacting people's lives, and it, it affects recidivism. If people come out of prison and they have a record and it's easily accessible, they can't get housing, they can't get jobs, they have nowhere to live and they have nowhere to work, uh, what do we think is going to happen next? So even if you were not even thinking about the individuals involved, uh, the impact on the public of having criminal records just forever sort of readily available, easily available online is significant. And that's what led the legislature to pass this sweeping quarry reform. And there is a real risk that um, once you put the information online through the court system, as sophisticated as the court may be technologically, there are still, there are already people going in, scraping all the data, saving it, and getting it ready for commercial redistribution. And that's the concern that the whole, all the efforts of the legislature and all the people that worked on that will essentially be undermined. So uh, just to give you an idea of how complex this is, uh, there are already criminal records available on, on the internet in some form. There are uh, many police departments put recent arrests online. Newspapers have long run police blotters. We run stories all the time about people who are arrested. District attorneys put out press releases on people who are indicted uh, and charged with crimes. And is it fair to people if the only record people can see on the Internet is that they were arrested or charged with a crime, but nobody can see that they were subsequently found not guilty or those charges were dropped? I talked to a pair of toll workers who were charged criminally with stealing toll money, uh, and their names and pictures were splashed across the Boston Herald and, and put in the Globe. And when they were the charges were subsequently dropped, uh, their employer forced them to sign a gag order, barring them from talking about it. Uh, the criminal records were difficult to get, so nobody could go online and find out that the charges were dropped. And when I talked to one of them, he desperately wanted that information out there. The, his name... 
and the fact that he was charged was public, but people couldn't find, go on the court website and find that the charges were dropped. Uh, when we've been, the Spotlight team's recently been writing about a number of accusations uh, against teachers and other employees of private schools who have been accused of uh, sex crimes uh, and other allegations, and a lot of times we found there were initial articles on the charges, but it was difficult to find the court record showing what the resolution was. And in fairness, I think that if it's public that somebody's been accused of a crime, it should also be public when some somebody's found not guilty and those charges are dropped. So they're not just haunted through their life by the charge without the other information. Okay, I, I do just want to be clear that we're talking not about whether court records should be public or not, but whether they should be available online or whether they should be available at the courthouse. That's that's really what this um, the new the court's new rules are about. I also think it's a, a exceedingly small minority of criminal defendants who are begging for more of their criminal records to be posted online by the court system. Uh, another uh, you know a related issue that I alluded to earlier is that the the data in mass courts is really, really unreliable. Um, colleagues of mine and, and I have conducted informal surveys of our own cases where we look at our own case records and we go in online to see what the, the court dockets reflect. And in roughly half the cases, we're finding significant errors. For example, a case where we negotiated a dismissal of the case and it reflects a judgment for the landlord. That happens all the time. Um, so what what are we really telling the public? What are we really are we really informing people of anything if we if the information is not reliable? And in saying this, I don't blame the court system. I mean, this is an underfunded court system. We all know that the clerk's offices are desperately underfunded, which is why they don't like pick, you know answering the phone and giving you the information over over the phone. Um, I'm very concerned that information that the court is publishing online that then gets sort of appears permanently. Uh, is just not true. Um, so one of the things I have been pushing for, and I and other people I'm working with, including the um, Boston Bar Association working group on this, suggested that the error correction procedures be much clearer and that they have tight timelines so that people could go in and say, look, I'm trying to buy my son a car and we can't get credit because I have this false judgment against me. Actually, I won a judgment against the landlord. This is a true, you know, true, true story. Uh, I won a judgment against the landlord, but it reflects a judgment against me. I need this fixed. And the clerk says, all the rule requires me to do is give you this form and you can submit it and I'll get back to you. I mean, right now, error correction is taking months. Again, not the court system's fault. They don't have the resources to get the records right. And that includes the Cory records. When you talk about uh, that, we're not talking about not having records publicly available. That you know, we're we're trying to restrict it as far as uh, well, not we, but the courts as far as internet goes. You know, there's widespread access. One of the databases that the state has available widely, and and you know this because you deal with housing law, is the registry uh, databases. Um, going back in some cases, a lot of uh, counties have been successful in putting them back 100 years on there. Mm -hmm. So you've got all of this data available, some even with uh, documents um, that have Social Security numbers on there, that have identifiable personal information on there. These aren't people that have committed crimes. These aren't people that have been adjudicated of committing crimes. These are people who simply bought a house. You know, and on there is uh, lien information. Um, there's uh, bankruptcy information, information that you know can be embarrassing as well. Why do we then say that that's okay, 
but court systems, which are supposed to be publicly accessible, um, the records cannot be widely dispersed. And I'm not saying necessarily that there is a distinction. I hadn't thought about that before, and that's a good point, that, that there is necessarily a distinction um, between registry information and court information. I think, as a principle, I think it's important to distinguish between um, the press, the important critical role that the press plays in holding the court system accountable and in exposing injustices and abuses that are out there in the world. Um, you know, the, 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 the press needs access to this information and the public does too to certain kinds of information. There are other kinds of information that really doesn't have a significant public interest, like, you know, did, did so-and-so make her $25 payment on time? And we, I think it's important for us to not draw everything with a broad brush and say everything, should, everything in our lives, all the information in our lives should be publicly available all of the time forever for the rest of our lives and haunt us and dictate our future so that we can't get a second chance so that in, you know, in order to enable the spotlight team to effectively and efficiently do its important job, which I agree is an important one. I just think that those principles perhaps are not as balanced it, it, they're not balanced in the way that I'd like to see them necessarily in these these rules. Um, there is an opportunity for the the justices of this, and, and Jack, as you point out, there may be specific, there may be differences. There may be differences between criminal defendants and civil and two businesses fighting with each other in superior court. That we may want to have different rules on online access to the to those for those two things. And so these rules, fortunately, do allow the chief justices of the departments of the trial court to um, articulate specific rules for the specific kinds of cases that are in, in their courts. For example, the family court may decide people's divorces don't need to be online. They, have, they should be publicly available at the courthouse, but they don't need to be online. Todd, I'll give you the second to last word here. Uh, I, I, th I think our conversation has shown that it's just a complex topic, and we're really wrangling with uh, the feeling that uh, people do uh, have historically felt a, a right to privacy and a right to be able to move on with their lives with also that need to have an open criminal justice system where we can find out how cases are, are ruled on, how judges are doing their job, what happens to a case after it's already been reported on? And those are two very difficult things to balance at times. Yeah, I think uh, it, it, this is going to be uh, a, a matter that certainly isn't going to be uh, resolved to anybody's satisfaction for a long time. Um, and I think that, you know, in this day and age of technology, we're certainly going to be struggling with it. Uh, I just want to close with something that the court cited in its rules, which I find to be very interesting. It's uh, from the Massachusetts Body of Liberties, Article 48 and 1641, um, and the fact that they cited it says that it's still in force today, which is, uh, it wrote, every inhabitant of the country shall have free liberty to search and review any rolls, records, or registers of any court or office. Uh, they probably did not have the internet at the time, but that certainly uh, is the... And uh, therein moving. lies the rub. <laughs> uh, Todd Wallach of the Boston Globe, thank you very much. Uh, Esme uh, Caramello from uh, Harvard uh, University, we appreciate it. And this is, once again, a wrap of um, this week's podcast. Uh, please join us, and uh, you can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes. I said SoundCloud. It's SoundCloud or iTunes. Thank you.
comes the sun. Here comes the sun.